Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and we have a very interesting and, I'll add, important topic that we are going to focus in on today on the podcast, and it's the topic of loneliness. In fact, I'm going to be talking with Susan Metis. She's the author of The Loneliness Epidemic. Huh. You just hear that and kind of feel uh, a little heavy, right? I remember a few years ago, and Susan could probably tell us this, um, when, um, the, when, when Great Britain, um, announced that they had appointed a minister of loneliness. And I remember thinking, what? Wow. Yeah. Well, we'll get into all of this, but first let me introduce my guest for today. Susan Metis is a behavioral scientist with extensive prior experience conducting research for faith-based organizations. Um, some of those you will recognize, the Barna Group, Thrivent Financial, and World Vision. Um, she's an associate editor for Christianity Today magazine and has written dozens of articles. You probably have read her, in fact. And I hope you do read her book, The Loneliness Epidemic. Um, all the information and links will be in the show notes. So without further ado, let me say welcome, Susan Metis, to Faith Conversations. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am glad to have you and to be focusing in on this important topic. And um I I do want to know, I'm sure you do know what year that was or approximate time that uh, Great Britain made that announcement of appointing a minister of loneliness. Do you remember about when that was? Well, it was before the pandemic. It was a couple of years yes. before the pandemic. Okay. And I think that that surprises people because, you know, it's, it's hard to forget what happened before 2020 right. at this point. It's really true. Uh, but a number of countries have been recognizing that they have a crisis of loneliness in their population. Yeah. And well, um, yeah. Well, so I want to go back before that. I, I want to go back to your decision to write a book on this. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, my guess is that you don't write a book on everything that you help do research on. Right. I'm guessing. No. That. So, so why, why this book? I mean, some of us might go, oh, we understand why now, because often we will refer to the, the pandemic as a time of loneliness or deep struggle or trauma or, you know, fill in the blanks, depending on who you are, how you fill in that blank. But why write the loneliness epidemic? What, what moved you toward this topic uh, now? Well, I was doing research with Barna, uh, and they they do a lot of studies of young people, as you know. And I kept seeing these indications that loneliness was playing a really big role in the lives of young adults. And um, so I talked with him about it and said, you know, I really want to do more with loneliness. And it turned out that um, 
one of the best things we could do was um, to follow up with a, the surveys that appear in this book are our Barna surveys. Um, but it really came out of noticing that that young people were expressing a lot about loneliness in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think we've all had a personal experience of loneliness. I certainly have. Um, and I've been at a few at-risk groups, if you will. I was single until my mid-30s. Mm-hmm. I've been a foreigner several times. Um, more recently, I've been a young mom. <laughs> and yes. um, and so this is, um, I mean, not a, not a young mother, but a mother of a young child. Yes. And all of those things, all of those things tend to make people lonelier. And, um, I think really, you know, I have experienced that it hasn't been something, um, chronic in my life, but from time to time, I think we all understand how unpleasant it is. What we might not all understand personally is that this is, a long-term, uh, long-term chronic fact of life for many Americans. And it's not something that comes and goes with life stages. It's becoming something that is a feature of their lives. So, okay. Several things, as you said that all fireworks were going off in my brain. Um, a friend and I were just recently talking about some articles written on, um, relocation depression. And I, my husband and I are newer Sarasota, Florida residents. We have been here six years now, (laughs) but (laughs) I would, I resonated with so much in your book because it took me a good three years to really develop a deeper experience of friendship. You know, acquaintances start happening right away, but we'll we'll get into this friendship topic, I'm sure, as well as we talk when we talk about this further. But that's one of the other points I think of loneliness. You've got a lot of you have any all kinds of people. I think of a lot of boomers because of retirement age hitting that group certainly in waves uh, and relocating to places they think will be fantastic, <laughs> beautiful. But of course you leave a friendship network behind. And there are many reasons why we move. You and your husband have just made uh, a a move. Mm -hmm. And so you have left a certain kind of network behind. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that comes to my mind. But the other piece that came to my mind as you talked about younger people was this. I think if you raise this topic initially in conversation, in with a middle-aged group, I think we would think, oh, older people. We think of yeah. elderly people as lonely. And so I think the interjection of young people into this conversation is a little bit more surprising probably to yeah. people, right? Yeah. I think it is counterintuitive, but the pattern is clear and it, it has been for a long time. In the U.S., not in every country, but in the U.S., uh, older people do tend to be less lonely and the younger you get, the lonelier you're likely to be. And, um, so that's, that's a very counterintuitive feature to a lot of people. Uh, there is a little bit of truth to this. And and that's that at the very end of life, when, um, when people become less mobile and less able to do things on their own initiative, uh, or when spouses and, and close friends die, there is a, an increase in loneliness, but that happens 
later than a lot of people expect it to. And um, there are also, you know, a lot of older people have these deep long-term friendships that mitigate those things and allow the grieving period, the the period where you're feeling loneliest, it does end. Um, so that I think it's still worth paying attention to. But if we're really trying to target a group that's experiencing devastating loneliness, it's not the elderly. It's young people. Wow. And it's it's young people who you haven't yet um, formed a community that's a, a permanent community, whether they're going to be single their whole lives or whether they're going to be married. And most people are happiest married and living in communities, traditional communities. Most of us feel settled and um like we have those those permanent nurturing relationships of belonging in that situation um all the same this we shouldn't make each other wait for that but uh it's it's one of those things where um we've just been paying a lot of attention to people who have relationships of belonging and kind of ignoring people who are in these transitions that used to be a few years long and now are decades long um, something else that came to mind, two things. One, I thought about, um, something that we often refer to the United States as, or we'll use the phrase that, um, you know, that American rugged individualism. And I, I wondered a little bit about that. If that is something that comes into play, we have, almost cast vision for that. Um, and and then the second thing that came to my mind was a number of years ago, this would have been, been just a little bit prior to 2010. So obviously um, you can do the math there that many years ago. Um, I was part of a radio show and we were doing some rebranding to um, uh, solely focus in on women. And we did a, a survey, we hired a consultant, et cetera. And um, we had 2,500 respondents approximately, which was a good, nice survey sample, certainly. And we, we were talking about women's points of pain. This was the shocker for me. The number one point of pain across the board, across ages, was the lack of a deep experience of friendship. You know, I guess you could flip that and call that loneliness or or that may may use that word that or possibly they might have used that word. But, you know, we were coming at it from a little different direction. But as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, oh, boy, loneliness. And I wondered if if loneliness, if it fell along gender lines at all, or if it was just more the age groups that you focused in on. So I looked at gender differences and they're very inconsistent. And in the end, I think what we have to say is that there's no clear uh, gender who experiences more loneliness. There are differences in lifestyle. And there, one of the things that we found is um, that men are actually the ones who are um, least likely to experience those deep friendships as adults. And, and that's dropping fast. However, all Americans have fewer friendships than they used to, fewer deep friendships than they used to. And this is one of the things that I think we really do need to focus on. A lot of us want the solution to loneliness to be um, a spouse, but more likely 
it's to have people in multiple roles in our lives, to maintain those relationships with siblings, to form new relationships with neighbors, to have uh, friends and some old friends, some new friends, um, all of those things we need. Um, and the people who are the least lonely are the people with a variety of close, intimate relationships. Um, so back to the rugged individualism, the idea that um, we're best off if we don't need other people. I mean, I think we can all see the appeal of that, right? It's It can be embarrassing to ask for help. It can be inconvenient. When you move to a new place, you might not have anybody. It is worth being vulnerable in those ways so that you can have these back and forth relationships. Ties are built not just by conversation and not just by talking to each other, but by doing things together and liking each other and depending on each other. And we really need more than one other person, more than just a spouse, more than a spouse and children. Um, we need and, and, and more than a fam, more than just more our than family too, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So we need to expand our circles and that's going to take some deliberate effort. Um, it's also going to take our family understanding that, that we need friendships. Uh, and, and that can be hard when you're, when your kids would like you to be, you know, doing a certain thing at a certain time for them, um, or your spouse wants to have, uh, you know, a, you know, a routine that kind of crowds out your other friendships. The other thing to keep in mind though, is that friendships form, most relationships form in spontaneous ways. You bump into each other, you're huh. doing things outside and you start talking to strangers. You talk to your neighbors. It turns out you like them. So when we, when we crowd out these, our ability to run into people spontaneously, um, then that can also hurt our ability to form friendships. We need to talk to strangers. We need to get out of our cars. We need to look up from our phones. Um, we need to have some slack in our schedules. All those things um, can help us with the, the lack of friendship. But in the end, it takes a long time to form friendships that feel like belonging. I like that phrase and I, you know, you certainly use that in the book to form friendships that feel like belonging. Uh, and I think, you know, in our six years here, I was looking for more than acquaintances. I'm an introvert and, you know, the first year or so here, and even early on in the pandemic, I remember thinking, oh, this is great <laughs> until it wasn't. Yeah, which I think yeah. that's the typical experience of the, of the introvert. Oh, this is good, but until it's no longer good. Uh, and I was very intentional. I had coffee with everybody that was coming through town that I knew and people here. And I, you know, um, because I did at least have an understanding. I, I'm, I might not have been able to articulate it, but I knew I was looking for a deeper experience of friendship and not just an acquaintance, though I realize how much those acquaintance friendships have really contributed to my life here in my community. And yeah. this introvert that likes to go a little bit deeper, I think I wouldn't have said that a few years yeah. ago. I have a new realization. And then I read about this in your book. And I'm like, well, look at that. It's backed up. Yes. <laughs> um, it's so interesting, the variety that we need, but are we struggling with the how to go about it? I think so. 
I think so. I've heard, and this is not part of my research, but this is something that, that I think jives pretty well with it. Um, young people are very afraid of awkwardness and maybe all of us are becoming afraid of awkwardness, but awkwardness is kind of, you kind of have to push through it um, rather than avoid it in order to, to get those good relationships. And um, part of that is, I, I did mention this in my book. I have, I had a neighbor, the house next to me used to have a number of college students in it. And um, I tried to introduce myself to him and he literally ran back into the house. I was like, dude, you're, you're 21. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not how you're supposed to be acting. Um, Okie dokie smoky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think it was because I, he didn't already know me. And you really need to to be open to people you don't already know. No, maybe it was something else, and I just don't know uh, what it was that scared him so badly. But um, we—it's a skill that can atrophy. Oh. Being able to meet new people, being able to carry on conversations, Good. but we also shouldn't expect ourselves to be artists. Um, to always be scintillating, to you know, you. to great. have each each conversation read off like an Instagram reel. These are uh, these are expectations that actually limit our willingness to do the things that are really good for us. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm taking that in like, oh boy. Um, but I'm also hearing that your, your, um, descriptor or, or, well, just the fact young people are afraid of awkwardness. And I was looking, trying to look at the age. I have a nephew who's a millennial. I had to go look at his, his generation, but, and he's, said that to me. He said, I'm, I'm just afraid I'll, I'll, I'll just stay in a conversation too long. And, and, or all of a sudden I just feel awkward and I, I don't know what to do. And so therefore I don't begin. I don't yeah. engage. And I, I mean, that was a shocker to me. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a shock to me. What can keep people, I think, from engaging in relationships? Yeah. Ha. Huh. Uh, okay. Uh, this is just an aside, but my husband and I lately have years ago, we watched this show and lately we've gotten back to watching it again. Just a kind of a nothing, no brainer show, Blue Bloods. So Blue Bloods is this program. Many of those in the family are in law enforcement in some way. Always, every episode, they have a family dinner. Every episode, they are all around the family, and most episodes, they uh, it's a Catholic family. They cross themselves and pray this prayer together, and my husband and I will often look at each other and have kind of teared up and <laughs> going, seriously, we know this family dinner is going to happen every episode. Look at us. We and, and we've had the conversation, how many others, you know, look at this? and have this same either yearning or, or I wish it was in my growing up years, or I wish it was today, or I found that really interesting about that show. And you commented not about that show, but just about the percentage of people who any longer have that kind of experience around a table. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. There are a couple of things going on there. One is that um, 
people really do bond over food and eating together. It is worth doing. And, uh, you know, they, as they tell you this about young children in nutrition, that it helps them with healthy food throughout their lives to have family dinners. There are also a lot of studies on relationships and, and particularly couples relationships that show that rituals help, um, help with bonding, help with all sorts of good things. And eating together can be a ritual. It might not happen every night for every family. It might not be um, within reach for people who are single. And yet, you know, if you can have a Sunday dinner, if you can have a Friday pizza night, all those things are really going to do you good. In the end, um, there's something, there's just something magic about sitting around a table together. Yeah, I agree. I see that. And, and um, yeah, in a, in a television drama, it's modeled. Yeah. <laughs> People it's see actually it and... one of the, one of the ways that Denmark has addressed loneliness Thank and Denmark you. doesn't have a huge problem with loneliness. Well, I was but... going to ask about the, you know, globally what this looked like. And I was shocked at some of these countries that had a very small yeah. loneliness statistic. So ta- yeah, go on and talk about that. Well, it's almost impossible to untangle um, what factors um, make make some countries lonelier and some countries less lonely. But uh, we do have some data on loneliness around the world. Most of this is most of this is in young people because um, there are some some ongoing studies of young people, especially in Europe. So one of the interesting things is that there's the opposite pattern of loneliness from the United States in some countries. Um, so in the US, the older you get, the less lonely you, you are likely to be. Um, but in Russia, Slovakia, France, and Spain, that's not true. The okay. oldest people there are the loneliest people there. Um, and in some other countries too. Now, there's a lot of speculation about why this might be. Um, it, I think it has to do with lifestyles as well. Um, expectations, lifestyles, how people live, um, how people use their time, um, safety nets, all of that. Denmark has a pretty low rate and a pretty flat rate. Nevertheless, they considered it a big enough problem to um, have some kind of traditional, these these cool long tables and um, oh, yeah. a princess came and, and ate with them so that they could oh. uh, get off. Uh, but a really great idea, I think. Wow. Uh, when we moved six years ago, moved, and we're in a community where we have a lot of snowbirds. And I think most people know what that is. People that are, you know, uh, seasonal residents here in Florida, six months and somewhere else for six months, you know, approximately. But our next door neighbors like us were year round residents. And we decided in talking with them, once a year, and we're coming up on that once a year time in later in February, um, to just do something simple that wouldn't cost an arm and a leg between the two of uh, us, the two couples, to have a um, hot dog roast and invite people to bring a side dish or a dessert. And we get these long tables and you know, we thought the those, and we it, we make it a kind of a block party, but it but and invite a few other people. I think we thought we might get you know fifteen twenty people, and I think our first year we had sixty five. Ooh, that's yeah. great. 
Yes. <laughs> and people were so, so grateful. It was a reminder to me again at the hunger for connection, for togetherness, belonging. I mean, you can probably fill in some other descriptors that I'm not using, but it was so instructional for us. And also we were just absolutely thrilled with that response and watching people sit together and live in the same community, but introduce themselves because they even on the same block, because they actually didn't know their neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a little more shocking, <laughs> but yeah. 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 It, it is, it is shocking. Um, and I think it's, it's actually pretty common for people to not know their neighbors, but I would say it's a mistake. Um, yes. neighbors actually affect your, your loneliness and your happiness in a way that you might not realize. Mm -hmm. And your neighborhood affects your loneliness and your happiness in a may you, way you might not realize that feeling of, um, being part of a team, um, that takes care of the area around you, of knowing people, of just being able to have those short, friendly conversations, yes. um, you know, even if it's being able to ask somebody to move their car, <laughs> this happens in the city. Um, and, and that is actually a big factor in some of the studies, one main study that they did long-term on, on a community in the Northeast, they found that neighbors really had a big effect on people's loneliness. Um, and the second group that had a big effect on people's loneliness were friends who lived close. So neighbors as friends and, and friends as neighbors really can, um, can have a big impact on the way that you feel in general. I this is so interesting. I my son who's 30 this past November, he he listens to the podcast and I'm going <laughs> to going to call him up. I want a conversation about this. So he's 30, but he's very intentional. He's married, been married 5 years. Very intentional about getting together with friends. He and his wife and even traditions. We get together with these friends on New Year's Eve or the, you know, this is what we do, or we only let a couple of weeks go by before we're getting together with someone. And I, I mean, he probably has seen my intentionality in this too. Yeah. I mean, often things are modeled through our family of origin. Uh, so, but I'm very curious just to talk to him because of his age uh, and how he views us. He's also, I would say an extreme extrovert or yes. strong extrovert. And he knows, in fact, I'll share with the world. He had a full ride for a doctorate and he stopped after a master's. He said, it is crushing the loneliness of the research life. Yeah. He said, I cannot do it. And I'm like, what full ride? You can't. And he has zero regrets. Yeah. Zero regrets. So, so I thought, wow, this kid knew himself enough to stop this and this. And thank goodness I, you know, did not press push back too much to the point of, you know, making that him change that decision at all. I mean, I would not have, but, um, so, so I recognize this also has to do with with that kind of disposition, how we are wired personality wise too, isn't it? Isn't that a piece of it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of silly, silly things said about introversion versus extroversion. It does seem to be a real thing though. And, um, 
one of the main things that seems to be different is just how many people extroverts feel they need in their lives versus introverts. But we all need close friends. We all need time with other people. Um, and we all get energy from being with other people as well as energy from being alone. Now, the, the balance of that and the way it's described can vary a lot. But um, I too married an extrovert. I um, <laughs> And I think it's helped me a lot, actually. I Sometimes I do have to say, can we put on the brakes this weekend? But uh, I think that helping, letting other people help us see the worth of the time that we spend with other people and the worth of the time that we spend quietly, um, those things can really strengthen each individual as well. But I would say, goodness, understanding the the effect that um, that a job will have on you, that a lifestyle will have on you is so important. And um, what he saw about academia is something that I saw too. And for a lot of people, it is worth it. Um, but for a lot of people, it isn't worth it. And knowing knowing the price that you'll pay and being able to say, well, I would, this is not a good choice for me. I think that's that's a really wise thing to do. And it sounds like he's understanding a lot about what makes for a good life. Yes. Uh, with yes. with helping uh you know, helping his family uh practice hospitality in that way. That's a wonderful thing to do from a loneliness perspective as well as many other aspects oh. of life. I, I really have learned a lot watching he and his wife. I'm just thinking back. They have a friends giving every year. They you know, they they do some beautiful things. Um, so one of the things that we've not really talked about yet, I, you know, this is also fascinating to me, what, or actually before I move on, what, what I wanted to also ask you touched on this was what we learn in our family of origin and also the things that we learn and are specifically taught in, in school growing up. Do you think that we need more intentional training, teaching, modeling, I think certainly, um, of how to cultivate friendships? I feel like you talk about that. I feel like this is a missing ingredient in our world. Yeah. So, um, you know, and some people have pointed this out about the book. The under our understanding of problems is always going to be easier than our understanding of solutions, sure, and sure. Um, that's especially true in long term things. But people have tried various solutions to loneliness, and and they've tried a, a few different things that that seemed practical. One is teaching people social skills, so kind of what you're talking about. Um, and one was helping people think differently about their interactions. So, um, to say, well, you know, maybe she liked me, but she was in a hurry or maybe she was preoccupied and that's why we didn't click. Um, or to, to say, you know, what would, what would the problem be if I, you know, what, why wouldn't I say hi to this neighbor and introduce myself? Um, the kind of self-talk, the kind of dialogue that goes on behind, they tried a few other things too, for loneliness, and of the of those, the one that seemed to actually get some traction for people is the one that helped them reorient their thinking. Hmm. 
teaching social skills didn't actually seem to help that much. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is. Cause I'm uh, thinking, Oh, that's going to, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the other, you know, they, they tried like mixer type things and it, it might be worth trying all these things. It might give you self-confidence. It might help you meet new people, but at the end of the day, anyone, no matter how awkward they are, can, can build friendships, cannot be lonely. That's, that's not the real barrier. I think that the barrier is is trying. And uh, to me, that's, that's what those studies really showed is that um, it's not, you don't need to have a certain personality. You don't need to have a certain style of talking. You don't need to eliminate the gaps in your conversation or, or whatever it is that's bothering you. But to, to understand people to to give a chance to the conversation, to give a chance to, um, you know, the, the long pause in your text chain, all of those things to not assume that you understand what's going on and that it's bad. Uh, those things can, can be the most helpful in getting past those initial stages of loneliness into real friendship. I'm also thinking that those of us who have a friend network work already, can be invitational to those yeah. we see that are kind of standing on the outside of the circle. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can invite others in. Yeah. Uh, and I know the book's not specifically, you know, talking about that, but I, that's one of the things certainly that I, that I think about. That's very true. Yeah. yeah and I think part of how, how, part of how we do that is not just including other people, but letting them become important to us, letting us become important to them um, the, the exchange of, of dependence, um, mm -hmm. is, is something that brings people into kind of the warm middle instead of the cold outside. That's really interesting. You know, we, maybe I got the cart before the horse as we dove into all this, but we really didn't talk about the, the actual, uh, definition of loneliness. And I found that really interesting how that has shifted and changed over the years yes. as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we all have a general idea of what we're talking about today, maybe, but then again, maybe we don't, <laughs> maybe yeah. we think it's one thing and not another. So I don't know if you want to say anything specific about that definition and what that looks like today or not. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because you can almost trace it through the Bible. I mean, we all know that our language changes right? and in the King James, the word lonely appears in, in describing Jesus as being in a lonely place. Um, you know, uh, during his, his 40 days in the wilderness. Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus was in an emotionally lonely place. It means that were, there weren't people around and that's, that's how it used to be used. Well, what would days, it be t today? What would, would it say solitude or? Yeah, solitude um, would be the, the substitute today, because really that means that you're alone. Okay. Um, solitude isn't necessarily lonely. Right. I think we, we've all felt that solitude was a, a, you know, a relief and a, a place that was really nurturing for us. We all need solitude. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't eliminate that in a pursuit of a, a life without loneliness. Um, so that's one distinction that's come up is instead of saying lonely for both solitude and the emotion that we have when we're disappointed in the relationships that are around us. And today we do use lonely and we also use lonesome to mean 
that we feel we wish something were happening with our relationships that's not happening. And um, there's a wide variety of that. So sometimes we feel lonely because we're grieving someone um, specific. You know, mm-hmm. when when people are widowed, they feel lonely. Uh, when you go through a breakup, you feel lonely. When um, you're an empty nester, sometimes you feel lonely and sometimes you're quite pleased about it. Um, but we also feel lonely when we wish we had friends that we don't. So that's kind of a hypothetical loneliness. That's real and it's painful as well. Mm. And um, I'm, I, for one, I'm glad that our language includes that. When we talk about loneliness, we're really talking about um, not just one person, not just a situation, but uh, our emotional need for others. How can the church respond to this loneliness epidemic? Well, I wish that it could be done with a program or with shaking hands during the service. And those aren't bad things. Um, And helping people get together and chat is probably helpful, but it will not eliminate loneliness in the church. But what we have to do is cultivate deep relationships. And, And maybe we can start that off. Um, by talking about it more, by by people saying, hey, I'm lonely, or by the pastor talking about the need not to just be friendly, not to just be helpful, not to just minister to each other, but to actually form relationships that will um, that will survive outside of the doors of the church. Um, but basically, loneliness in the church and loneliness outside are, are quite similar. And uh, that was a surprise to me because in the church, we do a number of things that are good for loneliness. We sing together, we share food, we meet people, um, we meet people that we have things in common with, you know, uh, all sorts of things that are good. We shouldn't stop doing those things. Those are probably having a good effect, but they're not eliminating loneliness in the church. And uh, I, I think, again, the way to eliminate loneliness is a long way. <laughs> it takes years, not months, uh, months, not weeks. And, uh, we have to invest in each other. I think that's one of the things that we need to do is each person who goes to church, rather than expecting the pastor to solve this for them or the children's director to solve this for their children, need to invest in other people and allow themselves to be invested in and known. So interesting. This brings back some interesting memories for me many years ago. Um, I wrote a book um, called What Women Tell Me. It was about fe- more about women, women's experience and a lot about my experience. And one of the chapters was loneliness in the church. And I tell a story about writing a prayer request and we put it in a basket. We were in the choir. We pass it around. Then we take someone's request out to pray for them. And I decided to get really vulnerable. And I wrote, I am very lonely please pray for me. We could sign it or not. And I decided to sign it uh-huh. and I put it back in the basket for someone to pull out, you know? And cause I think I thought maybe they'll not just pray for me, but maybe they'll connect with me. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so sometimes maybe it takes a little vulnerability on our part too. Oh yeah. Um, p- moving forward and yeah. So, so I, I guess with saying that, I'd love your response about that, but I also want to know what your hope 
for your book is. What what is your hope for the loneliness epidemic? The person that picks this up, what what kind of outcome would you be wanting? Yeah. So I'm assuming that the person who picks this up has someone in their life that they're worried about. Um that they are that they're thinking about their children, that they're thinking about parents or sisters or or people in their church, that maybe they're thinking about a youth group that they lead. I want them to understand what's really going on and I want them to be encouraged. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there, there is a lot about loneliness out there right now. And it's it might not sound terribly encouraging to say, this is a long-term problem with long-term solutions. But I think that when we really want to address loneliness, we have to invest in those long-term things. And so the kind of encouragement that I want to offer is, yes, what you're seeing is a problem. And yes, there's a solution. Uh, And you can be part of that Mm. in many ways. But here's here's how you have to start about it. You have to, you have to understand that this is going to be about a person's whole life mm. and not one day of the week. Mm. Um, and not, you know, just when you're seeing them, but also to understand that the person that you're worried about it, it has to start with them as well. So we can encourage people. We can pray for people. Um, we can set an example those are all very important things to be done. Uh, but in the end, loneliness is something that comes from feeling loved and like we belong and like we have real friendships that that we are managing with that other person. Mm. Well, to say that we barely scratch the surface is an understatement. Um, but I think this is such an important topic. It, it's been a kind of a hot button topic of mine for many years. And so when I saw your book, Susan, I was thrilled um, because I I love that you're talking about it also in the Christian context. Of course, certain things are, um, you know, uh, uh, don't, don't have to have that constraint, but, but I love the fact that this also has that, that, that it's central to that as well, as we look towards solutions, et cetera. So I thank you so much. Thanks for the time, effort, energy that it took to um, do the work on this from, you know, the research, the surveys, et, et cetera, and all it takes to sift through all that and then to write the book. So folks, um, I, I commend it to you, the loneliness epidemic, why so many of us feel alone and how leaders and how you can respond by Susan Mattis. Susan, thank you so much for taking time and being with us on the podcast today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And to everyone else, as I always say, keep the conversation going. Mm